I'm going to read the uh, passage for this morning in just a couple of minutes. And so if you've got a Bible there, you can open it to John chapter 1, which is page 1613 in a pew Bible, if you're using one of those. Um, There's this place in another one of the Gospels in the Bible, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verses 31 and 32, where, where Jesus says something to a group of people that just could not be pleased. He said to them, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling out to each other. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not cry. It's kind of a strange thing, but essentially it's, it's a poetic way of saying this. You just can't be pleased. You don't want to go to a wedding or a funeral. Played a wedding song, you didn't want to dance. We played a funeral song, you didn't want to, you didn't want to cry. You just don't, you can't be pleased. And one of the things that's really difficult in trying to understand what God is doing in the scriptures and what the gospel means and what does it mean that Jesus is the giving one and the savior and what Advent is all about and what Christmas means and all of that <clears throat> is that we, we think that the reason we believe that God's revelation is defective is because it is. And all through the scriptures, not least in the first verses of John's gospel, God is again and again saying that the reason we think his revelation is defective is because of our attitude. Just over and over again. I remember my first, my first year at university, um, I, I saw this, and it was kind of ironic that it was in my first two history classes when my minors was history. And when I went to, my, to History 203, which is American history from 1965, Civil War on, the first thing that happened in class was Dr. Powell got up and he started writing all these numbers across the board about the size of the universe. I mean, these are the numbers from which we get the word astronomical. Get it? Astronomical. The, no, that's, the words by definition mean enormous, right? And he, he just wrote all the way across the board in a very theatrical way. He's like, there's this many stars and this much time. It's been around this long. And he gets to the end of it. And he turns to all these freshmen, basically, and says, so let's just be clear. The idea that in history we study the loving providential acts of God toward us or our any of the, any concept of there being a God and that God act is complete and utter nonsense. The idea that, that there is a God in the size of this universe who is interested in what, what is happening on one little spinning rock with a bunch of bipedal primates who are basically just killing each other as it spins towards the heat death of the universe is crazy. And so we will be talking about how those bipedal primates on an insignificant spinning rock kill each other and act towards each other as they spin towards the heat death of the universe. But let's dispense with any notions of providence, God, any of those things. I don't want to hear about it, right? And I was, you know, I was 18 years old, so I did not immediately think maybe the fact that there's so many stars and planets says more about God liking stars and planets than that he doesn't care about humans, right? Or that part of love is bringing people towards the things that you find admirable. Maybe he wanted the people to enjoy something admirable about his creation and about himself, right? Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. But then I took my hat and my umbrella, figuratively speaking, and went to History 202, which is history before 1865, in which I was told the idea of believing in Christianity is ridiculous because the view is too small, not too big. 
in that class I was taught, there's so many different peoples and so many different views and so many different things. Christianity is just one little view amongst all of that, and the idea that that is somehow the truth for everybody, everywhere, all the time, it's just, there's too many options, and it's just this tiny little thing. It's impossible that it could be true. <laughs> I played you a wedding song, and you didn't want to dance. I played you a funeral dirge, and you didn't want to cry. This may have more to do with our attitude than with the truth itself. And one of the things that I recognized as time went on, and we should recognize, I think, now, is that that's, that's true of us. We are constantly finding fault in relationship to God's claims of himself. We think that there's those, even those of us are Christians, we, there's some section of biblical revelation, some part of actual right Christian doctrine that we don't like. Every one of us in this room, just about. And yet we believe in Jesus. There's this whole part that we like, but there's some part that we don't. And we're like, oh. And that is true about us. And over and over and over and over again in the Bible, God says again and again, the problem is not my revelation. The problem is your attitude. And you can see exactly that argument right here in John chapter 1. So let's look at it for a second. John chapter 1, just the first five verses is all we're going to look at this morning. That's not actually totally true, but let's just start with the first five verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. That is, anything that's not eternal in its inherent character. In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See the point? The point is, is that there is this one who is the Word, who is the proper argument. He is the Word, the Logos, the proper argument, the embodiment of all truth, the one who, when he as Word goes forward, forth, he creates everything that's been made, including every star, every space, every planet, everything. Okay? He is the perfect big argument, and that perfect big argument that created everything that is created is life. That is, he has within himself all of the inherent potency to create everything, and that one became the tiny thing, this one flickering light of truth that has the capacity to shine in the darkness and draw all interested parties toward him. And yet, it's not so big and overpowering that it extinguishes everything else. He is the big argument, and he is the small argument. He is the brackets of both sides, or as John said in his second volume, he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Now, the, the issue with this verse, because we're going to look at verse 5 today, is that it is very difficult to really get our heads around what it means that Jesus is the light. And there's something a little odd about the verse because the verse says, 
in him was life, and that life was the light of men. And that phrase does not make a lot of sense on the face of it. That life was the light of men. That's a little odd. But when you, when you break it down, that's what we're going to do for the next several minutes. When you break it down, it essentially says two things that we're supposed to take from that verse. The first is, is that the illuminating power of Jesus' life calls for our belief. That is, his bigness demonstrated then also in his smallness has a purpose. And one of the things that's really important, when people are doing things you don't understand, right? Like if somebody's doing something you don't understand, you tell your friend, I have this friend and they're driving me crazy and blah, blah, blah. What what does a good friend always say? Go. This is participatory. Go talk to them. Why? That, that advice has beneath it the proposition, the reason you don't understand their behavior is you don't understand their purpose. If you understood their purpose, their behavior would probably make perfect sense. Right? That's why you go talk to them. And you see, the claim again and again in John's gospel is that we do not understand God's purpose. And because of that, we don't like his self-revelation, the way he speaks and shows himself. And if we're going to really appreciate the way he speaks and shows himself, whether it's in the creation of all things, or whether it's in the illumination of all mankind through the person Jesus, we had better understand what what the heck he's doing. And what he's doing is he's seeking to undo the attitude problem in all of humanity produced by our sinfulness, which the Gospel of John calls darkness. That's what he's doing. He's trying to speak, he's speaking and showing himself to a race of creatures who are affected by this thing he calls darkness, and therefore they have an attitude problem that they don't want to acknowledge the truth. And so he sends into that darkness the illumination of the man Jesus. With all of the life and power and truth and validity of the eternal word from whom everything was created, and out of that potency of life, It is embodied in the flickering of the truthful light of Jesus who comes as a human being to seek and save the lost by illuminating, speaking, and showing the character of God. That's very easy to get confused about because you're taking something really big and bringing it down into the the concentration of a flicker, and that's very easy to misunderstand. But... The claim of the whole book of John is if you and I will recognize what our real problem is, and if we will recognize who it is we're looking at, and we will accept the light for what it is, and we will be drawn to the light, that is, we will believe in the one who is light, which is Jesus, we can receive the very life that was part of creation, an indestructible, eternal, potent holistic, powerful, truthful, good life. And that that is the only escape from the death of our true darkness. That's the message. Now, 
Let's take a couple minutes to look at this. There's four things to look at here briefly. The first is, because the the main focus here is to really understand what it means that that life was the light of mankind. And that is, is that in the whole Gospel of John, Jesus' light and life proceed together. They're really closely connected. The, The concept of light and the concept of life are found all the way through John's Gospel in a number of places, and we'll get to that in the last point. They're actually in the same verse, even connected with each other. When you look at that statement, it is not entirely clear on the face of it what it means. It's because it's evocative. But when, because normally what we think of it is as you read through the Bible, a lot of Christians will say, right, Jesus is the life, or the light, and if you believe in him, you receive eternal life. And that's true. But that's not what that verse says. What that verse says is that in him is life, and out of the life comes the light. That's what that verse says, which can be kind of confusing. But the reason why it's like that is clear in the context of the verses that come right before it, which is that there is this one who is the Word, the perfect logic, who is also a personal being. So the problem with his argument and illumination, that is how he speaks and shows himself, is not that his argument isn't good, John is saying implicitly. He is the Logos. He doesn't make formal or informal logical fallacies. Hence that physics works. Math is the language of God. It's perfectly symmetrical, right? That one creates everything. That capacity out of a truthful potency to create everything, John calls life. That's what he means. All these keywords in the Bible, life, faith, truth, love, are all defined by the Bible in the Bible. He calls all of that life, and it is out of that life that, pre- that proceeds light. In him was life, and that life became the light of men. That is what he's saying is all the potency— and all the truthfulness of God in creation is the very truth that resides in Jesus. That is, by extrapolation, the truth of Jesus and the truth of math come from exactly the same place. The mind and logic of God. And both truths are true, but one we are much—one we're just too lazy to learn, math. <laughs> the other— we don't want to know. It's one of the reasons this took us so long to do better at math as a human race, I imagine. The second way that John is trying to clarify what he's saying is by, is by juxtaposing the light with the darkness, right? The verse here says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There's two things that are kind of interesting about that passage. One is the word overcomes is a difficult word to translate. Because, and you'll see this, if you look in the marginal reading, it'll say this. There'll be like a little letter. And the dark has not overcome it. You'll see there, it has a little A. And down on the bottom, it'll say, or understood. The word that John uses there is a word that can be translated either way. To understand something or to physically overcome it and master it. It's a little bit like the English word to master. 
right? To master something. You can master an academic discipline. That is, you can fully understand how it works and understand it. Or you can master a wrestling opponent. That is, you can beat their socks off. The word can mean both. And I would argue it does in this context. That is that whatever John is referring to is darkness, and what he is referring to is something that is in humanity. That that darkness is affected by the light in two ways. One, there is something about the nature of the darkness that it cannot understand the light, not because it is so complicated that it can't be understood, but because the darkness in our hearts will not release the assumptions that allows us to conceive of the plausibility that the light is light. Right? Have you ever talked to somebody about something you know a lot about and you know you're right, and they have picked up some, some other idea from somewhere that they believe is true, and because they believe that's true, it's like not worth talking to them? They absolutely cannot accept what you're saying, that you know darn well because it's your field that it's right, and they just won't, they won't listen. And you're like, and sometimes you can even put your finger on it, I think you believe this, and as long as you believe that, you can't believe this, and that's wrong. You, you'll, you'll see that all the time. It's hard to recognize in ourselves, right? Really easy to recognize in other people. The reason the darkness that is in us does not see the light for what it is is not because the light is so complicated, but we do fail to understand it. We fail to understand it because of all the presumptions and all the propositions that are part of our faith in the darkness. And so the darkness can't understand it. But also the darkness can't overmaster it. The darkness can't control the light. But there's kind of, there's also something interesting about what this looks like, and that is this. The image of the light entering actually isn't like the sun rising. Right? At the end of night, dawn comes, and the darkness flees, and you see light, and you don't see darkness. Right? But that's not actually the image of this verse. That's not what happens— in the event of the first advent. You get the picture that there is a, there is like a lamp. So in the, in the ancient world, this is what we're talking about. Little clay lamps. And they pour olive oil in here, they put a little wick in here, and they light this. And it's essentially a glorified candle, is what it is. And it's just infinitely reusable and better for the environment. Right? And so, when he says this, what he's talking about is that in the middle of the night, there is this, there is this light that enters into all of that gloom. And to a certain radius, it pushes back the gloom. And while you're holding this light, you can see the darkness right in front of you. And you, ha you know that the darkness quote, wants to come back and take control. The minute you blow the light out, everything's to black. It immediately takes back all the ground if the light isn't pushing it out. And yet, the light shines in the darkness. So long as it shines, the darkness is pushed back and limited, and the two fundamentally coexist. In the first advent of Jesus, this is what he has accomplished. He is not like the sun rising eradicated all darkness. He has, like this flame, lit a light in the darkness 
that the darkness cannot understand and can't overcome, and that shines in the midst of the darkness so that everybody in the darkness can see it if they wish to. Does that make sense? It's probably going to go out. I'm not very good with ancient lamps, if you can imagine. We're supposed to get a couple of things from this. I hate to explain poetic, evocative statements because it sort of takes the life out of them, but we're not really good at reading poetry, so I probably should do this for a second. The reason why John uses the metaphors of light and darkness is because it's a multivalent metaphor. There's more than one thing in it, right? If you say, what does darkness, what is darkness supposed to evoke? It's not, it's not just ignorance, but it includes ignorance. There's a darkness, like we, we, we used to call the Middle Ages the Dark Ages, which is terrible history, but it, the idea was it was a time of ignorance, right? Turns out it wasn't really, it was part of the progression towards what we call the Enlightenment, but that's a different subject for a different time. But part of darkness is ignorance. Those who live in ignorance tend to live in darkness, and yet it also bears with it a connection to evil, right? Evil, darkness, right? We get that. And then also it's connected to death, right? There's, there's, this, there's this darkness you don't see anymore when you come to die. Right? We think of darkness. And so all three of those are bound up in darkness. And humanity, John is arguing, is covered with it. We are in ignorance, we are in evil, and we are in death. And all three of those coexist, and all three of those feed off of each other. They create internal self-cycles. Ignorance feeds into evil, evil feeds into death, right? Evil feeds into ignorance. Ignorance feeds into evil. Both feed into death. Death feeds into both of them. They cycle around. They grow off of each other. And when John says that there is in Jesus a light, it has the same three-part evocation of illumination as opposed to ignorance, goodness or righteousness, that is, it can stand under the shining of light. You can shine light on it. It doesn't need the cover of darkness. You can shine light on it, and it's okay. It doesn't have to scurry and run because the source of light has come to destroy it. And it stands for life, all three. And what—and and see, the point here is, is that those three are bound to each other. They cannot be divided. They cannot be taken apart. And the fact that they exist—where is mine—the fact that they exist together means that the, the idea we're supposed to take from this is that as the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it, yet the light is there, darkness stands for the ignorance, the evil, and the death. The light stands for an inbreaking of illumination and goodness and light, and these coexist with each other in the shining of the light, Jesus. That is, that there is a fundamental conflict that Jesus has created in entering his own creation. And that conflict's fault line runs directly through every human being. Because the darkness he refers to is the darkness of mankind. And that's not absolutely clear in this verse, but as you track this theme through the book of John, it becomes absolutely clear by chapter 3. <coughs> Does that make sense? Therefore, when you see those two in relationship to each other, Jesus is saying, 
He enters into the world to bring light, that is to simultaneously attack the three components of darkness with the three components of light in the same way at the same time for a very specific purpose, to separate the light and the darkness. Do you remember how Genesis starts? Right? God speaks and he says, let there be light. He doesn't have to create darkness. It's already there. And then the very next verse says, what does he do? He separates the light from the darkness, right? John is connecting salvation to creation. He's saying what Jesus is doing in salvation is the exact same thing he did at the beginning of creation. He created light, and he separated the light from the darkness. And now he comes as light, and he separates light from darkness. But how do you separate light from darkness when it is united together in the fault line of every human being? You see— The only way that works is when he comes to every human being and he calls out any capacity and he creates in us any capacity to come toward the light and to reject the darkness. That is, Jesus has come to do a spiritually moral work in us. That we would come to the light, that we would let go of the ignorance that won't let us accept the truth, and that through that illumination, and movement towards his goodness receive life. And that is the only way, he says, that can work. And that is why Christian spirituality is as it is. You can see this as we move through the book of John. (coughs) It says, after it says, in verse 5, verse 6 says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light. Why is he doing that? So that through him, that's him, the light, the Son, Jesus, the Word, through him all might believe. As you move on to chapter 3, one of the sort of famous verses is John three sixteen, And we, you know, we get from God gave his son, isn't that Because he loves the world. He does love the world, and that is important, but that is not the logical structure of the verses. Let's read the verse before it, two, where it says this. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. In case you're not with it, that's from the book of Numbers. The Jews were—the Jewish people were in the desert. They were complaining against God. God sent judgment on them in the form of poisonous snakes. They were getting bitten and dying. They they cry out to God for salvation from God, which is exactly how salvation works. He says, okay, make a bronze snake and lift it up, and anybody who's bitten who will have enough faith to just look at the snake will live. Exact same mechanism of salvation, right? Salvation by faith in God's promise. Right? He said, and so Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So you see that illumination is being able to see something because it's lit up. Right? This is the same metaphor, except it's a helping people see something via perspective. You lift it higher. It's the same idea. People couldn't see it, and then they were able to see it because the thing was lifted up rather than light shone on it. Same idea, except 
It's not a bronze snake that's lifted up. It is Jesus lifted up on the cross so that all people could see him. That is not just optically, because the metaphor is mixed here. You can optically see somebody lifted up on the cross, but at that point you actually see the light of what Jesus is trying to accomplish. It is in his death, in his giving himself over as an atoning sacrifice, that he looks at us and says, you need this. You need this. There's nothing else that will help you. I would not do this for no reason. You have to have it. That is meant to be a flame of light of truth that calls us out of darkness and into light. And you can see these three things. The light of revelation, calling for belief, producing life. Three times. He's lifted up so that we would believe, so that we would have life. For God so loved the world that he gave his Son, that is, the light comes into the world, so that anybody who believes would have eternal life. You can see this relationship over and over again and over again in the Bible. God tells us the truth so that if we would believe it, he would give us the life that comes with that light. Right? You can see it in the verses, because you might be like, Nick, you're focusing a little bit. No, I'm not. This is exactly what the Gospel of John says. In fact, just a couple of verses later, John actually makes explicit how this relates to the concept of light that he talked about in chapter 1. He said, you want to know what's really going on in John 3, 14 through 16? Do you really want to understand that? Because people will read that and be like, oh, God, so love the world. He said, that is not what's happening. What's happening is much more gruesome, much more dirty, and much more dark. Here's what's actually happening in the hearts of people, which is why God has to save this way. And this is what he says. This is the verdict. That's not used anywhere else in John's gospel, as far as I know. He's saying, this is why it's like this. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. You see what he's saying? It's a willful ignorance based on a self-interested desire to keep that which we want to do that cannot bear the light shining on it. And because of that, we then concoct arguments for why we wish to avoid it. Now, I'm not saying every single reason of disbelief falls under that. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, is that the heart is a idol generator for self-protection of its own darkness. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what has been done has been done through God. That is, the receiving of eternal life he just talked about three verses earlier. That event of eternal life, that transformation of the human soul, that coming into the light and wanting to live in the light and be in the light, as humiliating as that will be when we come into the light, that is an act of God's gracious power. Because remember, his light has this life in it. And he said, that is what's happening with all of this. It is, a, it is a conflict between darkness and light. We want to believe it's a lot more complicated than that. And that conflict is a complicated conflict. But it is a conflict between those two poles. One of the reasons why this is important is, is that people really struggle with the idea that faith, that salvation is by faith. 
that bothers people. They want it to be—almost everybody on some level wants it to be about being good, and they want some kind of control over what's good. And generally speaking, they would like for that—and this is really really ironic, okay? Because if you look at our modern American definition of what's good, it's that you approve of the right things, not that you do the right things. Have you noticed that culturally? It's not about anymore whether or not you do good act A. It's whether or not you publicly approve of the ideology you're supposed to. And then it doesn't matter what you do, you get to be a good person. Which is literally the complete inversion of morality to utter hypocrisy in terms of moral theory. It could not be more—not just wrong, but literally inverted in its hypocrisy. Light and darkness applies to you on the basis of what you do, which flows from what you believe. But when you recognize that what Jesus is saying is the distinction between the two comes from us existing in darkness with the capacity in the image of God to see, know, and love and be loved by God, and that Jesus has come as light to call us out of that, you will see immediately that everything rides on whether or not that creature caught between those two poles will believe. All of salvation must ride on that. Now, God can do the drawing— and get all the glory for it happening. But the condition of salvation must then be whether the human creature that loves darkness will leave that darkness and come into his light, that is, of the truth. And so it is not an issue of—see, what a lot of people think is, what you're saying, Nick, is that I have to believe in your little narrow understanding of Christianity. And there's so many views out there, and they're all basically equally plausible. And what you're saying is, is that your God will essentially damn me, will literally damn me, if I don't believe in your one little view and 5,700 different views that all seem sort of plausible and seem to all be produced by human beings. And I agree, if that is the case— It would seem that the God of that view is enormously unreasonable. I concede that. Fully stipulated, there's a terrible premise in that argument, and that is that that is actually a good description of what's actually happening. What what Scripture teaches and what Jesus teaches and what John is showing is that what happens is, is that because we don't want to come into the light, we have hearts that produce many idols, and in order to defend those idols, we produce many philosophies that protect them. And so a sinful race will produce 50 billion alternatives to coming to the light. They are all equally useful for us remaining as we are. And any of them will do for us to keep our particular brand of darkness, which is different for every one of us. But it is not coming from the darkness into the light to the one who illuminates that which he created all things for, coming after the fault line of what we are to call us back into the image of God and to renew us through his own regenerating power out of the darkness that we so love in an enormously humiliating and in an enormously freeing way, which he just calls faith. Believing. Believing in this context is walking out of darkness and into light. And if you understand, now you can believe that's all false. But let's not confuse the argument. 
let's at least be intellectually honest with what Christian faith teaches. And then let's let Jesus attack us and tell us that it's true and we ought to believe it and we must. Does that make sense? The last thing is Jesus only gives illuminated life. Okay? It's, it's not as though what John is saying is the life produces a light that draws us to it so that he can give us eternal life, so that we can live forever. That's not what he's saying. That's not enough. He is saying that, but he's saying more than that. There is only an illuminated kind of life, which is one of the reasons why we don't want him. Right? If I said I was just going to give you a big pile of money, you would probably be like, okay. But if I invited you into a particular lifestyle or action or something along with it, I'd say, listen, we're going to be really wealthy, and this is how it's going to happen. And I describe this very grueling, very difficult, yet very significant, yet very hard, that will make lots of enemies, which will destroy our reputation. We won't be liked by anybody. And with all that money, we're going to give it all away for certain things that nobody will make monuments for us for or name buildings after us. And that will be our life, and then we'll die, and everybody will forget our graves, and that'll be it. You'll be like, I don't want to be rich that way. That is exactly what Jesus is offering. He is offering eternal life. He's totally offering eternal life. But an illuminated eternal life. He is inviting us to come into the light permanently. To live in luminescent light. A light that is, that is put aside our willful ignorance of sin and is coming to learn from him as teacher to become his disciple. Fully. To put aside our sin and accept what he tells us is good and right and learn why it's good and right instead of constantly criticizing that it must not be good and right and to save us from death so that we can live forever in his illumination and in his goodness. And that is the only kind of life Jesus is offering. That's it. There's no other kind of life he's offering. And the only kind of death that is on offer is not a good southern barbecue in hell with all your buddies. The only kind of death that is on offer is one that is full of ignorance and full of wickedness in all its darkness, in all the holistic meaning of that darkness. And Jesus comes as the illumination separating the two, offering himself to you fully, calling you to that light. Offering you everything to gain, specifically on his terms, which if we would walk out of the darkness, we would see as amazing terms, and yet sitting in the darkness, we see as terrifying terms. Terrifying. It seems like we'll die if we do it, which is exactly why Jesus said that that's exactly what it feels like. Some of you know that I'm into mushrooms, not the hallucinogenic kind. Um, one, one of the things that's really interesting about mushrooms is they are activated by light. Right? There's all this mycelium growth, which is the real fungus, underground. But they're not going to put up their little things and let out the spores unless they know they can get above the ground to do it. And so light activates them growing into mushrooms. Right? You have to have light or they won't grow. I've, I've done it. It doesn't work. Okay? But they are—they—the the light isn't their life. 
the light activates their life. The light directs how they're going to grow. The light kind of sets the timing for what they're going to do. But they are not reliant on the light. They don't live for the light. Which is different than a, a photosynthetic plant, right? A plant that lives by light. The, the, the light is its life, its food, its direction. It spends its whole life turning towards the light. It loves the light. The light is everything to it. Everything that needs to survive. Not everything, but much of what needs it comes directly from the sunlight. It loves the light is its life. And listen, there are a lot of Christians and there are a lot of Americans that are mushroom Christians. They are straight-up mushroom Christians. They have, they have been directed a little bit morally by God. They have taken something of spirituality that they like from Christian faith to somehow comfort them. They have taken certain signals from the Bible or from Christianity, but they do not live for and orient to and absorb and enjoy and gain color from the light. And so many of you have told yourself that if you became that kind of person, you become some kind of self-righteous jerk. And that is possible. That is the danger of that pursuit. But that is not what Jesus offered. That you can either be a licentious idiot who loves the darkness, or you can be a self-righteous religious person. Jesus called both of those people to the light. And when, when we begin to realize that, that this is Jesus' invitation, you begin to see it all the way through the Gospel of John. Chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Right? He who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12, 35. Jesus said, you're going to have the light only a little longer. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. You see the idea? I'm only going to be here a little while. But when I'm gone, if you believe in me, you will be a child of the light. That is, there will be a light in you. So that in Matthew, Jesus could say, you, the church, are the light of the world. And then in chapter 12, a little later, he says, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that the one who believes in me should stay, should not, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Do you see how that works? He's the light, but anybody who believes in him and receives his eternal life wouldn't stay in darkness. They would come into the light. Do you see how those are tied to each other inextricably? The message of God to receive us, to change us, to affect every little thing in our life, every problem you have, every frustration you have, every feeling you feel buried under, many of those things feel like incomprehensible puzzles to you. But it's actually part of the willful ignorance of our sin and our unwillingness to let Jesus teach us about those things and to really shine light on them. He has come that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness hasn't overcome it. That is, we exist in the state of conflict. If you become a Christian, you have a lot of peace, but you exist in a world that is in a state of conflict where there's darkness looming and there's a light shining. And it will probably feel like conflict. But the claim of John's gospel, the claim of Advent, the claim of Jesus, is that the very one who is the Word, who created every star, and every planet and every space between them who apparently likes science 
is also the one who came as a man to illuminate a way for those in darkness, for us. But that only happens when we will believe in him. And I don't just mean like altar call, believe in him. You come up here, believe in Jesus for the first time, be fabulous. You can come right now if you want to, right? Be great. I mean every minute. You come once, and then everything is by faith. Every minute, every moment, the plant decides whether to turn towards this life or to turn back towards darkness and begin to die. Every minute. Every minute there is this call that right now, that thing, you're a Christian, but you don't even like it about God or about Christian faith. That you, you know it's kind of right, but you just, you, you're terrified to accept it because of what you're afraid it will do to you or how it'll make you look or something. Just that same light is calling you to come out of that darkness and come toward the light and let Jesus be who he is and tell you what you are and to let you turn and to glow in the light you were created to live by. That is the kind of eternal life that Jesus gives. He only gives one kind, and it's the illuminated kind. And when you realize, when you realize all of that, you'll see Jesus as generous, as giving. He has given everything to us one of the hardest groups of people to be generous with are people who are entitled and have a terrible attitude. It's so hard to give. People who are thankful and take your gift for what it is and love you for who you are, they're so easy to give to. The divine love of Christ is shown in our attitudes and how we look at his gift. And yet, he gives it, and he waits, and he gives, and he calls, and he waits, and he calls. But like it says in John 12, John said, Jesus said, I will only be in this world a little while because he wanted you, the reader of John, to feel that for yourself. There is not an unlimited amount of time for you to walk towards that light. Now, and I don't just mean you could get hit by a car. It is going to be wintertime, and, you know, that's there. But there's also a turning of the heart towards darkness that is increasing. And the more you say no towards the light, the more your heart turns from it and is strengthened against it. And you do not know how that works. None of us can know exactly where we are. Do not harden your heart a little bit today. But believe in the one that will turn you toward the light. Let's pray. Father, we, pr I pray that you would take this one line in the first five verses of John and that you would confront us and that you would heal us and help us and strengthen us and help us to see the conflict and puzzle that we live in for what it is and help us to see the opportunity for what it is. I pray that some, some folks that have a very difficult time believing in you um, would move towards the light in some meaningful way. Maybe they're not going to believe in you today, but I pray that they would look more into what the light is shining for. I pray that there would be some people who right now should be accepting you and believing in you and putting their trust in you. I pray they would be. I pray they'd be praying to you right now and saying, God, I want to put my faith in you who are the light. And I pray that anybody who in this room is essentially a mushroom Christian who just 
takes some direction from the spirituality or the morality of Christian faith, but isn't a disciple to turn to you absorbing all the light you would pour on them. I pray that you would help them see where they are and give them, help them to have faith and give them faith to turn towards you as a plant longs for the light. And lastly, I pray for every one of us, every one of us in some way, don't want to turn towards your light. There's a place for all of us. Help us to see it for what it is and help us to turn towards your light. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.